as we stand now, there is absolutely no reported such side effect or adverse event of testicular swelling in Trinidad. Or I Democrats are set to take control of the U.S. Senate, House, and the White House. This will go down as one of those progressive administrations in American history. God willing, everything is on the table. You now can pass things without a filibuster threat. That's right. Oh, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ruthless Variety Program. I am joined by my hosts, Mr. Josh Holmes. Hello. Mr. Michael Duncan. Hello. And let's get right into it. Listen, that was the Trinidad and Tobago Health Minister, Dr. Terrence, last name unpronounceable, uh, (laughs) who was giving a report on the Nicki Minaj allegations of the swelling balls uh, in Trinidad and Tobago. He was saying that there are, uh, it doesn't happen. Yeah, so so folks who were just as lost as I'd say everyone else, uh, Nicki Minaj tweeted something about uh, a cousin who <laughs> got the vaccine and their testicles swollen and they became impotent. So. <laughs> just, just, you have millions of followers <laughs> and, and so you then, just put your cousin on blast. Yeah, I mean, the cousin is just So th- I think that's the story. Like everybody else made this super politico- political and like made a, you know, a big sort of vaxxer, anti-vaxxer argument out of it. Right. My takeaway was the cousin, man. It's just, he's a victim. Poor cousin. Cousin oh. destroyed. The cousin, like he had to keep a super low profile last week, right? Yeah. <laughs> It wasn't me, guys. It was some other cousin. <laughs> Must have been another Minaj cousin. Super rough for that guy. <laughs> oh, man. He had to keep it so low, bro. All right. So we got a big show. We got a lot of great stuff. We have Vivek Ramaswamy with us. If you guys have not heard him, he's the author of Woke Inc., which is a New York Times bestselling book currently. Uh, I got to know him a couple of months ago as he's been talking about woke corporate culture. Yeah. And he just spits hot fire. Like I see him, I see his TV hits and it's just fire. So, but this dude is super impressive. Yeah. I mean, look, you got to listen to all these interviews because they're great. You really got to stick around for this one because the dude is so good. Well, the, the thing I love about him is, you know, you can listen to politicians all day talk about this sort of stuff. Like, here's a guy who knows his stuff because this is the world in which he operates. Right. 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 Like, it's not just some, He's a CEO. Yes. He's a CEO who actually stepped down from his company as CEO so he could continue to speak out. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's saying something. Guy, you really have to appreciate him. Anyway, we got him in the back uh, end of this episode. But we have a ton of content here. We do, and and not just you know our podcast. We got we got a very exciting announcement, folks. When we did the Iowa State Fair, we were joined by uh, you know an amazing videographer. We had our whole audio video set up, and we got a video that's going to be hitting YouTube. Yeah, so we've taken our time with this. Uh, because we wanted to get it right. But basically, we're going to release tomorrow, today. We're going to release a video that's of our eating contest. <laughs> Just the most ridiculous game. <laughs> it, uh, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, there's a little bit of chicanery. Yeah. Uh, you know, smug. Uh, you know, he, he definitely 
bent the rules a little bit. I mean, you just, I I didn't see any rules against anything I did. (laughs) Uh, And another thing to enjoy for the folks wondering at home, I took kind of like the, uh, the name, that Barstool guy, uh, PFT commenter. Yeah. I took his approach to remaining anonymous, threw on a hat, threw on some aviators. Yeah, no, you were very hard to yeah, recognize. No, 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 but it's a great video. It's a it's, super good video. It's very funny. Hats off to our videographer. Did an absolutely terrific job. I, I will say you'll not see any of us uh, in this sort of genre ever before, right? Yeah. I mean, this is brand new stuff. You're going to love it. It's going to be on our YouTube channel. Yeah. We'll tweet it out, but really enjoy. We'll put a link to it in the show notes of, of this episode so you can click right there. And it also gives you a little preview of what's to come with future Ruthless Lives. And there will be ones. Uh, We've got them in the works. In the works. And coming very soon. They are in the works. All right. So, guys, the House, the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate is back for the first time together since July. Yeah. I mean, think about how much water passed under this bridge since July. Nice little summer vacation. Not like there's a bunch of things that need to be taken care of, but okay. (laughs) So when they left, Dems were basically a fait accompli about the entire Biden agenda, right? It was the infrastructure deal. It was the three and a half trillion dollar tax and spend deal. It was all kinds of Afghanistan. It was just basically everything was going to be done. No worries. Great. You fast forward six, eight weeks. Democrats are in a hell of a political problem. Dems in disarray. Yeah. Dems in disarray. It's our boy, it's it's like, our boy Dougie Andres. It's says. like that meme uh, from that show Community where the guy walks in with the pizza and yep. like there's a fire in the yes. house. <laughs> That's exactly what's going on. It is. Not looking great. It is. So just like to, to set the table for what everybody walks back to. So they, the Senate passes bipartisan trillion dollar infrastructure package back in July, and House moderate Democrats made demands to Nancy Pelosi at that point that they that they put that on the floor and vote for it. Of course, they caved a little, and they said that you got you to gotta vote for it before September 27th. Yeah. Right? We yeah, gotta, they, didn't Cinema give that? She, she, like, went to Joe Biden and was like, here's the deal, Joe. Well, that's what she said last week, right? The House Democrats have been saying this since july okay oh, that's she okay. added last week she's not going to vote for any of this mess unless they they do it before the september 27th self-imposed deadline that pelosi put in place in order to get moderates quote-unquote moderates to vote for that budget piece of garbage and and on top of that and we talked about this back in july before they they went on recess with that bifurcation of the hard infrastructure bill with this 3.5 trillion right. But, you know, we mentioned it then, guys, they didn't deal with the debt ceiling. They didn't deal with it. They left without dealing with it. So on top of all this, we got that. So there's two other things. The debt ceiling that Duncan just brought up, McConnell told Pelosi and Schumer he's not going to vote to raise it. Right. Nor is any Republican going to vote to raise the debt ceiling because they've had this prolific spending since the beginning of the year. And it's on them. If they want to do it. They control all of Washington. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, okay, you have the White House. You have the Senate. You have the House. Dems, if you control all three, this is on you. Like, well, and then I would I would mention also that, like, when the tables were turned in 2017, like, the, the discourse, big D discourse was, what can Dems extract for raising the debt ceiling? Exactly. You know what I mean? And it became sort of this beltway conversation of, well, yeah. 
Republicans are, Republicans are in control. This is going to be a tough thing for them. What are they going to have to give up to get Democrats to raise the debt ceiling? It, and now yep. the conversation instead is, well, Mitch McConnell is just so damn irresponsible. Right. And it's like, right. You guys he won't give it to him for free. Right. <laughs> It's incredible. So Mnuchin actually at that point got into, remember the Treasury Secretary for President Trump got into long Right, had to make a deal with the Democrats. Had to make a deal. So these guys don't think they have to make a deal. No. So, so McConnell tells them to go up or ever. Yeah. Right? right? So that's still sitting out there. Treasury and the markets are a little freaked out about it. Yeah. But he told them the easiest way to do it is burn your reconciliation package and pass the debt ceiling on that. And you'll be just fine. Okay. Can you explain that burn the reconciliation? So they have a reconciliation vehicle, which is what they're trying to pass this $3.5 trillion tax and spend bill with. McConnell's idea is that you just use that that sucker, basically, to raise the debt ceiling. I think probably, I haven't talked to him about this, but I think probably knowing well that they don't have a deal on their $3.5 trillion internally. Right. Right? Reconciliation enables a party to pass whatever they want to pass that's in the tax and spend category on a simple majority. Right. This so is like a little the cheat code. It's the cheat code around the filibuster. Right. They get around the filibuster. So he basically wants them to try to rush that process so they can't get what they want. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that's my interpretation of this yeah. anyway. So... It's still sitting out there. Pelosi says no Republicans will vote for it. Trust me, they will not vote for this. <laughs> They're not going to vote for this. So they got that sitting out there. Government funding ends September 30. So you have a government shutdown that's also on the horizon. You've got the $3.5 trillion, as we just talked about, undone. The bipartisan infrastructure situation, undone. Right. And they all come back to Washington with eight legislative days looking at each other like, what the hell? Yeah, you know, I, I'm i just going to go out there on a limb here. I think Democrats want this all to blow up and fail. Like, I know, I think that they know they don't actually have the votes for it. And they want a 10-car pileup so that they can say, oh, it's, you know, Mitch McConnell's fault. Oh, it's the parliamentarian's fault that we can't put amnesty in this $3.5 trillion bill. You know, like, they just want to... They want to pile up and then they want to scapegoat Republicans and then ask the voters to give them more seats. Yeah, but the problem, I agree with you. I think it's, there's some elements of that. Right. The problem, as we've discussed previously, is twofold. One, you're the party that's entirely in power. Yep. Do yeah. you think anybody's going to blame Republicans for you not being able to do the basics of government, like keep the lights on? Yeah. Right? And two, as we've discussed... This is legitimately a lame duck presidency if they get nothing out of this. It's over. Yeah. It's over. And they know that. So they have to do something. I get it. I guess what I'm saying is like, and when we were talking about the the debt ceiling, I mean, it's like the discourse is different when it's a Democrat. There, There may be enough people on Capitol Hill who are Democrats who think if they do fail, the media is going to carry enough water for them to make an argument for the midterms. Maybe, but they're bleeding, man. I, I mean, know. look at the poll numbers. It's terrible. <laughs> they're dude, just getting killed. I know. I mean, that's the thing is, since, like you said, this is the first time the House and the Senate have been there at the same time since July. The world has completely changed. Completely. Like, it's become very apparent, even to the most, like, staunch, ardent Democrat, that Biden is sinking. By the day, his poll numbers are sinking. They haven't gotten anything done. And 
the only the only thing that people associate with Biden right now is incompetence. Like Afghanistan, incompetence. The border, incompetence. And so Dems are like, well, geez. Like, well, this what fits political the bill. capital does he have? Yeah, exactly. This is a perfect example of in- incompetence. And I'll even go one step further. I think this puts a lot of the myth of Nancy Pelosi's genius into into question. I hope so, because that is like the the biggest, dumbest myth. Because it only takes just a, a sort of small amount of leadership to try to figure out how to get one of these things done. But she saw this bipartisan infrastructure package that passed the Senate that went to the House. Right. That all The Biden administration and, and, and quote-unquote moderate Democrats and, and moderate Republicans wanted to get done. She said, we can't do it in July yeah. because I have to make sure that the progressives are on board. Right. And if the in the order to get the progressives on board, she had to make a promise to move this three and a half trillion dollar boondoggle at the same time. Yeah. Right. But nothing has gotten better since then. Yeah. It's been it now it is tougher to get progressives on board. It's tougher to get moderates on board with the three and a half trillion, obviously, inflation and everything else. And so she's now in a place where she sacrificed both. Good soundboard. That's good soundboard. soundboard yeah. And when we and when we talked about this back in July and that whole bifurcation between hard infrastructure and this three point five trillion, that was kind of the gamble. That's right? the, well, that, that's that the gamble. That Pelosi yeah. will screw it up in the house. Yeah. So I, we'll remain. I mean, it remains to be seen. But but dude, 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 did you guys see this? This whole like. Sorkin-esque West Wing brainworms take that maybe Pelosi will like pass the hard infrastructure and then hold it and it's, not actually send it to Biden for his signature. I mean, how do people come up? Is with it, it? <laughs> Have you seen this? Yeah, but it reminds dude. That reminds, it reminds me of the holding of the impeachment article. Yeah. <laughs> she's like, oh, she's so smart. She's so smart, just, and then it allowed every Republican to be like, no, it's too late. I dude, there are a hundred people on Nancy Pelosi's payroll in this town and they all work for the media. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> she has just completely screwed all of this stuff up to the point where there actually is no Biden agenda. Let me just remind you. The Biden administration came in with 1 million vaccinations a day happening on the Trump watch. Yeah. COVID is worse now than it was when they found it. That's the yes. thing is, you know, it's it's an important statistic to bring up, especially in light of what Biden ran on biden said you know i'm not going to shut down the country i'm going to shut down the virus well folks as the new york times reported we just hit 2,000 covid deaths per day yeah that's not shutting down the virus especially not when you're handed off multiple vaccines no and then their argument at the time was well in order to get the job done that joe biden promised the american people you need to pass a multi-trillion dollar covid package yeah Remember this? Right. That no Republicans voted for. That will get us done, right? I just need to fund teachers' unions, essentially, uh-huh. for us to get to the point where we have put COVID in the rearview mirror. Liar. Bingo. It's exactly <laughs> right, soundboard. That's exactly right. Total lies. Well, when you when you go forward from that, guys, there's nothing else that's happened. Like, when else? when are we going to start talking about the fact that this is maybe the most unaccomplished administration in the history of presidents? Like, they are one year in. They have got nothing. And and like you brought up, the kind of, like, unifying force for conservatives should be, we kill this $3.5 trillion garbage bill, and and Biden is a a lame duck president within his first year. It's over. It's over. It's just a huge, huge important thing. Keep your eye on us. It's moving really, really quickly this week. 
But we love to talk about this, and we'll get more in-depth as, as the days and weeks go on. Secondly, guys, I got to talk about this because everybody's lost sight of this Durham report situation. So good. It's so good. Smug, do you see this situation? I have. I have. Break, break it down. It's basically the exact opposite of what the Libs thought is going to happen. Yeah, so a lot of frustration within the conservative community that the Durham report hadn't come out that just sort of outlined all of the stuff, right, that we were alleging. Remember, the, the Durham report is in response to how the Russian collusion investigation came to be. Right. Well, it turns out he hasn't lost focus on this at all. Last week... A grand jury indicted Michael Sussman, a former partner of a prestigious law firm, this might ring a bell for a few of you, Perkins Coy on Thursday. Perkins Coy, of course, is... Mark Elias. Mark Elias. Mm -hmm. and oh, Mark. until recently. Yeah, he right. got out of Dodge. Right. He's, he's got a new outfit now. Now he's got a C4 paying, <laughs> paying his legal bills. So um, Durham's office is alleging that Sussman lied to the FBI's general counsel in a 2016 meeting when the attorney presented evidence of back-channel links between the Trump Organization and the Russia Bank Alpha Bank. I'm quoting from a Hill article there. So, so remember, there was a bunch of stories, including a New York Times story at the time, that tried to, to suggest that there were basically digital footprints. Yeah. Talking between... The servers. They're yeah. communicating. Yeah, they're communicating, right? <laughs> And it was this dude, Michael Sussman, who worked at Perkins Coy, who went to the FBI to tell them about the, all of this, right? The implication being that he's just a concerned citizen who's got knowledge of this issue, not that he's doing the bidding of the Clinton campaign and his clients. E exactly. Right. Well, and that's what, that's what we've got here with Durham. Yeah. Durham is saying, uh-uh. Right. So what occurs to me when you look at that indictment, like why would he really care about some lawyer and whatever? It's because he's put his finger on how this whole thing started. And now, in my view, the way that he's conducting this investigation and where it goes from here is that it's just a web that begins to explain the entire two and a half, three year right. episode that had an impeachment in the Mueller report and all of this like tragedy that followed this country and obsessed everyone the completely fake russia garbage right that and that's the thing so what uh this is from a yahoo article sussman is accused of falsely telling the top fbi lawyer that he had no clients uh that he was when he was actually representing a technology executive and the clinton campaign uh, during the September 2016 meeting on possible links between former President Trump and Russia. So, so I mean, my take on this, and I understand the Sussman guy um, is basically the focus of this investigation. And, I mean, his, his name straight up is Sussman. It, Sussman. Suspect. <laughs> like, like, the fact, sus. like the fact, the fact that, that the FBI was chasing leads from this guy is just hilarious. It tells you everything about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Officer Goose, Goose Chase. You know what's <laughs> going Anyway, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, like, if you're the FBI, how didn't this raise some alarms? That, like, like the, 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 key, the key to your case here and the reason why you're investigating is somebody from a law firm that works for Hillary Clinton. Like, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, if you look big picture on the Russiagate collusion narrative, you will find more points like this of people who are compromised, who have a reason to tell you the things that they're telling you. Yep. And the FBI and these people 
were willfully obtuse. That's the thing. Willfully obtuse. That's the thing. Is yeah. You break this down point by point. So, so the Hill had this, and it just lays it out. So Sussman, again, that Sussman, <laughs> delivered documents and data to the FBI supposedly supporting a claim that Russia's Alpha Bank was used as a direct conduit between uh, the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. He also told uh, the FBI's lawyer that he wasn't delivering the information on behalf of any client. Uh, and the indictment not only details multiple billings to the Clinton campaign as the data was collected and the documents created, it claims Sussman billed the campaign for the actual meeting with the FBI, which is like build incredible. It. That, that that is bold. That that's like super like that takes some big ones. That takes some Nicki Minaj cousin big <laughs> ones. <laughs> this is like all time lawyer billable moment. Unbelievable. <laughs> That'll even get Trinidad and Tobago's bill, huh? Yeah, no. So and, I, and the icing on the cake, uh, Perkin Coy uh, attorney Mark Elias was general counsel for the Clinton campaign. Just incredible. It's all going down. It's it's so Andrew McCarthy. For those of you who don't follow him at National Review, very serious lawyer. He he's does a ton of commentary on Fox, and he's excellent. But he really broke this down really well. And I mean, I'll just read a part of it. Here's where the prosecutor appears to be going. The Trump-Russia collusion narrative was essentially a fabrication of the Clinton campaign that was peddled to the FBI, among other government agencies, and to the media by agents of the Clinton campaign, particularly its lawyers at Perkins Coy, right? Who concealed the fact that they were quite intentionally working on the campaign's behalf and they did not actually believe there was much, if anything, to the conclusion of the narrative. Yeah. So, so basically, like, these guys knew they had a bunch of crap. Yep. Right? But they were working for a campaign where you don't have to actually find the crap. You can just muddy the water with it. Right. Where these guys crossed the line is they went into the FBI and used the Department of Justice. That they were, in, they were there in good faith with information. Not that they were basically doing paid PR flacking for the Clinton campaign. It changed from political dirt to ultimately a Department of Justice investigation. Yeah. All because of these people who who were playboys with the law, essentially. And, yeah. And that's the thing is, so now uh, the left is like completely losing their minds about a Hillary Clinton lawyer getting indicted. MSNBC had the headline, Durham's Sussman indictment is a bizarre coda for DOJ's Russia investigation. And this uh, this goes back to the thing. Man. Everyone's all circumspect now. Oh, you God. know, like like yeah. these people ran garbage for four years. Just lies. Garbage. I mean, that's the thing is the left, it's like their cardinal rules. They always, always accuse you of the things they're doing themselves. Yeah. No, that's absolutely that's right. That's right. But they also can... They they control the national media narrative to the point where you can't talk about anything else. We didn't talk about anything for two and a half years. Even conservative media didn't talk about anything else for two and a half, three years during great accomplishments. Well, well because we had to spend all day debunking all of this bullshit. It, it, exactly. And, and 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 you know earlier I was I, I was pointing out that the FBI owns part of this for trusting this guy. I mean the media owns all of this at every point of the way for trusting these people. And I think back to the beginnings of this Russiagate stuff. And like, for a living, what I do is digital media, right? And so the one part of this whole Russiagate thing that I always looked at was Cambridge Analytica. Remember Cambridge Analytica? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And what I read in the newspapers from unsourced, or, you know, unsourced anonymous people about what Cambridge Analytica was doing. Remember, this was the data firm. 
and you know they had apparently been hired by the by the Trump administration and, and and or Trump campaign at the time, and and the implication from a lot of this reporting was that it was the back channel for all of this Russian collusion. Well, not only that, but and, they remember sucked all the data. Yeah, the data. Do. And 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 I will remind <laughs> you that Barack Obama's campaign in 2012 did that. They they actually and were heralded. Did they it. were heralded as geniuses for doing so. And, right. and, the, and the best part is Cambridge Analytica was all it was snake oil. It was like snake they oil. They were actually well, doing see, nothing. And, and that's and, and they that, were terrible. At their ultimately, job. that's my point. Smug is any serious reporter who was writing a Cambridge Analytica were the secret Russian collusion people story who picked up the phone and called a single person in this town who did digital media professionally yeah. would be laughed at. Yeah, and they probably were. And they still wrote the story. And when I started reading those stories, I was like, all of this is fucking fake. <laughs> like, like I'll, I looked at the Cambridge Analytica part of, of Russian collusion, and all I did was extrapolate to the rest of it. And I was like, I don't believe any of this. Right. Because if the way that they're writing about Cambridge Analytica is the way that they're writing about the rest of this, it's all fake. And it was. It is. It, it, makes, it still makes me so angry. So unbelievably angry that this, this happened the entire Trump administration, and it was based on nothing. Based on nothing, but but I have some confidence right now that they are getting to this exposure. Now, I don't think the if there's people at the FBI that don't go to jail, it's not a real investigation, in my opinion. I'm sorry, this guy can go down. This guy who worked for the Democrats, but if there aren't people in the intelligence community and our law enforcement who are held accountable for this in a real way. It's not a real investigation, in my yep, opinion. Yep. All we're doing point. is we're circling the wagons and we're pretend, we're continuing to protect a failed system. And these people aren't elected by anybody. And yeah. So uh, speaking of the FBI, and, and this is what the libs were focused on this past weekend, attendance at the Justice for January 6th rally was almost oh, completely I press. I love Very this. Very few actual rally attendees. And, I mean, a lot of those... There was a cop. They there were look. cops un- arresting an undercover cop in front of reporters. <laughs> like, like that's what it was. There was a media surrounding a bunch of cops who arrested an undercover cop. Like that, it's just feds, feds and trapping feds. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> but it was so great to see like seventeen cameras surrounding one old lady with a flag. Yeah. And it's like they outnumbered 10 to 1 the amount of people that were there for this rally. And then like 30 federal agents all just like wearing aviators. <laughs> Unbelievable. Looking at each other like, so who here can we talk into doing something? <laughs> but, but this is a perfect example of controlling the narrative. Yeah. Right? They'll have everybody believe that this was a serious threat. Dude, CNN spent all of like Thursday's coverage talking, on this talking about the fencing going back up in capitol hill bra- capitol hill braces for this rally and it was just like a bunch of feds trying to entrap each other <laughs> like unbelievable it's inc- it's unbelievable like <laughs> well look um as long as we're su- pointing to successes of the program i think the one biggest success of the program that we can talk about to date was this story that came out from Politico about Jen Rubin. Smug, you see this thing? Uh, it was hilarious. <laughs> and, again, this is a complete triumph of the Ruthless Variety program. <laughs> so it like combines King of the Hill with claim to fame. Yeah. Right? Which is is basically that Jen Rubin has lost her damn mind, clearly. Yes. But also is entirely a tool of Ron Klain. Right? So they wrote a story about it. And they broke it down so nicely. They said, so this is from the political article. It says, Chief of Staff Ron Klain has retweeted 
or mentioned Ruben more than three dozen times since <laughs> mid-May. Thirty-six times, more than more than forty times. I mean, wow, <laughs> wow. I mean, exactly. Yes. Like, and it says uh, the White House press team, the DNC, the State Department, and the Vice President's office have all promoted various columns and tweets from her in recent weeks. Like. There you go. There you go. But where this thing really blew up, and this is just classic Ruben style, is that most people would have been like, most people in Washington would have seen that that piece and been like, yeah, we know that that's going on. Like, that is what it is. But Ruben has to push back, right? So she sends out, she rips off an email with the subject line, off the record. In all caps. In <laughs> all caps. She's a member of the quote unquote media. Right. Right. That's not how it works. Right, you don't get to dictate the terms there. <laughs> so. And and then it's just like, I declare it off the record. That's it, not how it works. It, it, that's hilarious. So, you know, for folks, if you ever have to deal with a journo and you want to be off the record, you first say, can we agree this is off the record? And you have to wait for an email back or, or a text back saying, yes, I can agree with that. You can't just say, here's... I am Jen Rubin, and this will be off the record. I have declared this off the record. So in the article, it's hilarious how they put this. It says, on Thursday, we reached back out with our reporting. (laughs) Rubin responded an email with the subject line, off the record, all caps. Since we never agreed to conduct such an off the record conversation, we're publishing it below in full. (laughs) (laughs) Just next level. I love it. I love it. And her response is just the classic brain worm stuff, right? Trying to get out from underneath a bad story. But the bottom line to me is it's just validated everything we've been doing with our games. Everything. It's been so good. Just the cyberbullying works. <laughs> it works. It, so so what, one other thing I want to say on this, and it's backtracking a little bit, but in the actual political story, the thing that I laughed the most about was uh, <laughs> was this this little graph here. The White House has encouraged outside allies to share some of Ruben's articles <laughs> online. One told West Wing Playbook that they declined to do so <laughs> because they thought it was just too embarrassing to earnestly share a Ruben column. <laughs> it's like people in the White House are like, nah, man, that that's cringe. I literally can't share it. <laughs> you, 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 you know what my take on this now? You know what my take is on this now? is It's kind of like let them fight. This yeah. is so hilarious yeah. that Ruben and the jerk. So I'm going to say... Honestly, it was it was a pretty shitty thing for Politico to do this of where they're like, you know what? Screw it. They didn't, you know, they didn't follow the rules of our secret journal language. Well, so okay, we're, okay. for more clicks, they we're wouldn't follow the rules if we were doing it. This but is the thing. I, I mean, don't feel shitty about that. At I, don't, all. I don't. Here's the thing. Yeah, right, right. When Trump was president and situ- I remember a situation with Kellyanne Conway where this happened. Yeah, where she thought there was an understanding of off the record and there wasn't yet. And they they choose to pop and, and 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 none none of these people Jen Rubin especially would have cared about that. Right. I mean, she chose to write what she wrote. There was no agreement um, at all. And and here's the thing: it wasn't off the record something, and then something that's sort of you know run of the mill. She just spent the entire email attacking Politico, <laughs> calling them misogynists, and and then calling out rep- specific reporters like Sam Stein saying, I can't believe he's involved with this publication. Yeah, because we thought he was on our team. Yeah, right. So, so I mean, what, what do you expect to happen? I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's but, absurd. I, but I honestly don't want the, the controversy over the off-the-record, on-the-record to overshadow the story itself, which was fantastic. It's just it's hilarious. Fantastic. You know, so, last thing, my, my like, next-level conspiracy theory take 
all this is orchestrated. Ruben's got a book. I think it just came out. You know, this journals would do all this to just goose but each other's dude, numbers. Who in the world would buy that book? There's, I, I don't think anyone should, but there's a lot of crazy lists. Do you think, I mean, who would buy an RBG prayer candle? But they sold those. <laughs> oh. I mean, I, I find it absolutely mesmerizing on a day-to-day basis. The Washington Post strokes a check to her every month. It's wild. unbelievable. It's incredible, isn't it? Oh, my God. So this next one, a Smug, is particularly addressed to you. Um, I love this. Your boy Beto is back in the news. Yes, he is. So... Uh, I'm going to read straight from the Axios article. Former Rep. Beto O'Rourke is preparing to run for governor of Texas in 2022 <laughs> with an announcement, expe- uh, announcement expected later this year. Folks, <laughs> Beto is a furry, many people are saying. But the images are out there, and I want to say, I'm trying to remember what publication it was, Duncan, that got the pictures out there of Beto in that like sheep suit. Oh, when he was in the band? Yeah, it was a, it was a left-wing one. It was like the Jacobin or something like that who got their hands Jacobin? on it. Jacobin? It might have been Jacobin or, or Daily Beast or Intercept. It was one of them. I can't remember. Yeah. But, folks, Beto is a furry. I mean, the minions have destroyed him multiple oh, times. Oh, he just destroyed him. Like, uh, it, his, his SEO was completely destroyed. Like, if you tried <laughs> searching on Google for Beto, everything that came back was like, well, this guy's a furry. He's a furry. Like uh, his local paper, I remember, this was great. His local paper wrote an article about many people online debating whether Beto is a furry. <laughs> oh, it's the and the, his presidential campaign goes ham <laughs> on the writer of that ca- article. It's like, well, this is all they're left to do. I feel they, like you single It was Mother Jones. It was Mother, Mother Jones. Jones. I just, Mother just Jones. found it. Incredible. Yeah. So, but, I mean, the guy's so bad. First of all, you destroyed his campaign, smug you and the minions, just like completely buried him. But second of all, this guy's run for four offices in I think four years. Yeah. Right? He was a he was House of Representatives. He ran for Senate, he ran for president, now he's running for governor. Yeah. How many times can this asshole lose before he just gets in back in the bunny suit and heads home? I mean, that's the great thing, is like he raises a boatload of cash and just gets destroyed. Like he his his Senate race against Ted Cruz. I can't. Did he raise like a hundred million? Yeah, like a hundred million. A ridiculous amount insane. of money, which went to Texas, it, which went to Texas, Texas. to yeah. try to get a dem elected. Me- meanwhile, we grew the Republican Senate conference. <laughs> yeah, as a result, all the donors are sending their money to Beto to win in Texas. Yeah, he gets crushed by over well, like two hundred thousand votes. I'd point out, like Abbott. I mean, I remember Q2. He had like $55 million in the bank. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> that guy's not just, going anywhere. Just, it's just, that's what makes us even better. Oh. It's like, you know, just straight straight with, with, with the political implications of running a statewide campaign in Texas, like you're up against a lot. You're running against Gra- Greg Abbott, who's like, God, <laughs> gonna crush he's just like a pharaoh with the amount of money this man has. <laughs> it's incredible. And I mean, another great thing about uh, Beto is... In Texas, he's running in Texas. He has that quote where, uh, from when he was running for president, where he says, "Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15." Right, right. Like, how do you think that is going to play in Texas? Not good. It Not good. It didn't play well last time. And I mean, hey, I hope he burns a huge pile of cash. Beto's a furry. Whoever works on his campaign is going to have to wake up and see that every single day. So I've got some advice run for, Beto for, run. for Beto. I'd like to hear it. <clears throat> I'd like you to call up Sarah Gideon. I'd like you to call up Jamie Harrison and Amy McGrath 
and I'd like you to rent their email lists <laughs> over and over yes. and over again. And then I want you to call up the people at, uh, you know, uh, Data for Progress or one or any of these other, you know, just shit poll outfits and get them to put up a fake shock poll, ball. a fake shock poll that you're close to winning. And then raise $200 million and lose by 10 points. That would be great. It would just be great. great for the RGA. It would be that. great. Man, that's incredible. Well, you know, it, look, speaking of Texas, what they should be focused on. Yeah, there's another disaster going on in Texas, not what, just Beto. What they should be focused on is the, the border crisis. We've talked about this, I feel like, endlessly every episode since January. And it's getting worse, fellas. It's, it's shocking that it could get any worse. Uh, th- there are nearly 15,000, I'm quoting from NBC News, hardly a publication sympathetic to conservative causes. There are nearly 15,000 men, women, and children, mostly from Haiti, seeking refuge under a border bridge in Del Rio, Texas. Yeah, and the mayor, what? a Democrat, the mayor, a Democrat, can't get any help. And Joe Biden was riding bikes in Rehoboth Beach this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. On vacation. Well, this is Kamala, Kamala's in charge of this one. <laughs> Kamala's got it. And uh, uh, Fox LA, they, they, they've had uh, a reporter out there who's been getting all the video of this going on. Uh, he says, we are back underneath uh, the International Bridge in Del Rio, Texas this morning, uh, where at the time, it's, it's, it, at the time it was 12,000, now it's up to 15,000. They're still camped out after crossing into the U.S. illegally. Conditions here are similar to a third world refugee camp. Jeez. I mean, what the hell is going on? Yeah. What the hell is going on? They've just done absolutely nothing. They, guys, this is a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. When you, inv- when you invite people, when, when, during the Dem debates, when every hand goes up being like, yeah, I'd offer anyone who can make it into this country free insurance and, and we'll take care of you. It doesn't matter if you break the law, enter illegally, we'll offer you amnesty. So, of course... This is what they get. What did they think was going to happen? You mean you guys remember when we had Tony Gonzalez, the Texas rep, yeah, on the program, and he was saying that the one thing that they were all asking for body was bags. body bags, yeah, body bags, body bags, yeah. Like this is this is where liberal border policy gets you, right? the 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 guise of it is all about like humanitarian. Oh, how can we deny citizenship to these people who are seeking a better life? And what they actually provide are people who are dying under a bridge in South Texas. Yeah. I mean, right. My it's like, God. it's this soft headed do goodedness. It's the same thing you see in places like San Francisco. That's basically a failed state where you got human feces on the sidewalk and, you know, people shooting up like, you know, you think you're helping people and you're really hurting them. And, 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 and the other thing is, so now basically every GOP governor in the country wants to meet with Biden over the mishandling of the border, this disaster. You've got 26 governors seek a meeting with Biden over the border surge and crickets. This white house is doing nothing, nothing, nothing. No, well, because they got that 10 car pile up. That's going to happen on the legislative. Well, side. And, but he's kind of plays into it because th- what they were trying to do house and Senate Democrats. And I think like Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada was leading the charge on this was trying to get a pathway to citizenship. Right. Into this reconciliation trillion tax and spend thing where they actually would provide literally citizenship to millions of illegal immigrants within the context of this bizarre budget bill that they were doing. Right. That doesn't sound germane. 
No, I mean, no. So the, so the Senate I'm not par- a. All right, I'm not a parliamentarian. What did the parliamentarian? Right, say? So the Senate parliamentarian was like, uh, no, <laughs> you can't do that. But even if you could, can you imagine a scenario where you would just authorize citizenship to potentially tens of millions of people on a party line vote? Like they basically explain, like, do you realize the consequences of what you're trying to do? Right. And they're like, nah, hell, let's just go full bore. Right. But they can't get that done. They can't get the bill done in, 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 at all. I mean, it, it, this is, guys, this is the most incompetent group of idiots that has ever been in charge of anything. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. I think it's smug. You said this a couple of times. It's like, you know, the Biden team is basically the Obama B team. Yeah. It, it was the people who are like, who couldn't get an actual job with Obama. So they're like the assistant to the assistant paper pusher. And like... Although, like, Obama people are like, oh, yeah, we got jobs at Amazon and everything. You know, they cashed in. These are the folks who who couldn't cash in. I literally think that they thought that if they went in and didn't tweet anything offensive, that they could go do a bunch of Vogue covers and, and New York Times Magazine yep. pieces yep. and Aaron Sorkin their way into, like, the breast presidency of all time. Yep. Right. And then, like, they never really gave any thought to actually the machinery of government. Yeah, they forgot that uh, you're supposed to do things. No, I mean, <clears throat> honestly, I, I think Barack Obama is the worst thing that ever happened to Democratic politics because they all drank the Kool-Aid and thought it was because they were so great. It's so good. You know, the, the reality is that Barack Obama was a once-in-a-generation political candidate. Yeah, he, wait- really, he really was. I mean, game recognized game. The dude was incredible. Like, on the stump, fantastic. The guy could sell anything. Um, and, and they, they all thought it was their policy. They thought it was them. They thought they were the reason why he, and he was, you know, Obama was beloved by the media. And they thought that they could come in here in this Biden administration and get that same treatment. Yeah, I really, really think did. that's what they thought. They really did. Guys, you want to play a game? Let's, Let's play a game. It. So I would point out here, okay, because we talked about Politico and Jen Rubin. I really wanted to play claim to fame. I did. Yeah. We hadn't played, we played Demer Journal last week. But that Politico piece. Oh, it shut him down? It shut him down a no. little bit. Well, that's, it was, it was the Ruthless Friday program. That's right. That led to the political piece. So he and stopped our bullying. Shit? And like the way Claim to Fame took off, it just has bullied yeah, Claim. Claim. The White House chief of staff is cowering. <laughs> Claim has re- really real, yeah, he's really reeled it in. You Are know? you serious? Yes, 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 yes. So like you didn't have the content. Didn't have the content. Just He's not throwing out RTs to everybody. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. What an accomplishment. It's so good. What an accomplishment. And listen, hats off to the minions. Yeah, hats just incredible. Off. Outstanding work. The online traffic is just terrific. So we're going to play Demo Journal. Let's okay. go. Let's hit that music. Demo Journal. Demo Journal. Demo Journal. Demo Journal. Nobody knows. Still too long, but hey. We should get another stanza. Yeah, just let's make it longer. <laughs> no new words, just another stanza. Yeah. I love it. All um, right, Demer Journal, here we go. Demer Journal. Hold on, I can get my paperwork ready because I had to take some notes. And for the uh, folks at home, first-time listeners, the way the way the this game works is Mr. Duncan is going to read four tweets and one is from a dem operative, three are from journalists, and we have to try to figure out which is which. Do you guys realize what a long way we've just come where Smug explained the rules? No, Smug explained the rules to the audience, 
He didn't trip up at all. He nailed it. Nailed it. Incredible. Yeah. That's 75 hard. You know, you're at least sharper on the rules. <laughs> yeah. You know, Got which I, out of it. I appreciate that. Okay. <clears throat> Statement number one. Jen Psaki, once an obscure political strategist. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me read this. <clears throat> Clips of her restrained exchanges with reporters have established Jen Psaki, once an obscure political strategist, as an unlikely cultural force. Uh. Wow. <laughs> That's number one. Okay. I'm going to read it one more time because I kind of screwed it up. Clips of her restrained exchanges with reporters have established Jen Psaki, once an obscure political strategist, as an unlikely Cultural force. Cultural? In what culture is she a force? Honestly, have you met anybody who belongs to Ooh. that? Ooh. In, in Jen Rubin's living room, she is a huge hit. Dude. <laughs> I, you know, if you think about like the people who make Muller Christmas carols and RBG okay, prayer fair candles, fair, fair oh, so you can yeah. understand it. <sighs> I love the kids. You always go to the candles. It just, it's embarrassing and it's blasphemous. Let's be honest. Okay. Statement number two. Okay. Jen Psaki offers details and precision as White House press secretary. And her fame is growing. And her fame is going? Growing. Growing. Okay. Statement number three. This is a tough job, and Jen Psaki does it so well. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Statement number four. Psaki's cleanup of her misfired claim about sanctioning a nation's leader. Wait a second. Can I get a reread on that one? Saki's cleaned up. Sorry, sorry. <clears throat> Saki's cleanup of her misfired claim about sanctioning a nation's leader, and then it links to an article. Hmm. But is it a reporter, or is it an operative? I got, I got my pick. So I will secretly. Oh, I'll turn around. Let on. the judge and jury know who I think is the operative. All right. Okay. Smug has given me his answer. All right. So let's just march through this. I think that number one is definitely like a New York Times Magazine, Vogue, or InStyle piece. Okay. I, I, I guessed Journo. To me, like when they say cultural force, yeah, you can't. to me that feels too Like only journos think they're so important that they can dictate culture. Yeah. You know, that they can influence culture. Very also, good taste. No one cares outside also, of journos about let's journo Also, let's just like point out how strange it is. Like it's just a strange way of saying it. Strange. But it's a way of being political- with without having the baggage of being like in the tank for you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um so here's the problem. I know that I'm I know that I'm I'm getting thrown off the scent here. There was a there was Ooh. there was definitely a a judge and jury intent to throw us for a, a curveball here. It's a little flourish. 
I, I do that from time to time. Yeah. Sometimes, though, the flourish is a misdirection. Yeah, well, that's what I'm, I'm trying to distinguish here. Mm-hmm. Uh, because number two, in and of itself, is very much like number one, right? Uh, growing fame? Hmm. Would you, as a Democratic operative, talk about another Democratic operative's growing fame? See, here's the thing to me is uh, it, when I, when number one was talking about how growing cultural force, that's kind of like uh, the journo trying to throw off their own kind of uh, uh, adulation and, and say, oh, it's from the public. The public is, is, is doing this. But the growing fame, I feel, is different. To me, that did strike me as more operative-like. Mm, interesting. Of, of kind of like a tip of the hat to a fellow operative kind of thing. Yeah. You're, you're saying because cultural force implies this isn't me. I'm merely reporting yeah. what I see. It, it seems people. Like cultural force seems more like from a ground-up kind of thing. Okay. Whereas they're like, oh, growing fame. You know, it's kind of more like a tip of the hat to a fellow operative. To me, that's what it felt like. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Okay. <clears throat> So then three, a tough job that she does so well. I mean, I think that can come from a lot of different operatives, for sure. It can also come from a lot of different journalists, although you have to be such a... Uh, I, I mean, can you imagine as a journalist sitting in the same room saying that she does it so well? Well, that's the thing. Is so the, on three, I went with uh, the Tucker Carlson theorem that only a journalist can be so shameful. Oh, I like that. I like that. So for me, I, for me this, this boils down really... Two, three, and four are a toss-up because misfire is a key deal there. If it's misfire from an administration or Democratic operative source, you've got an internal management job, right? Like press secretaries are like wide receivers. Uh It's all a head case situation. you got to make sure they're confident at all times. They have to be confident or they're never going to get the message out. If you say that they misfire... You're going to destroy somebody's confidence. Okay. Right? So, but but my hesitation on just saying that that's a journo is like these guys are in a rough spot. I mean, real rough. I don't know that it's that rough. I mean, that's like, that's deadly type stuff. I, I still, I, I'm going to have to say four is a journo. One is a journo. Tough job that she does, does so well. Like, obvious, obvious operative quote so i don't want to take the bait on it i Ooh. feel like Ooh. um i'm gonna go with number two smug also picked number two Ooh. number two was a tweet from the boston globe are you no serious? way another wrinkle <clears throat> number one was from the new york times style section oh i nailed, nailed that, that was that's yeah you perfect. absolutely you nailed, nailed it holmes dude. the boston globe reprinted that and, and that was there to it yeah oh so those okay. two kind of work on other side so right if it's number three i should have just trusted my instinct you should yeah it was amy klobuchar yeah i should have just trusted my instinct i thought Num- thought i was getting thrown at curveball yeah well sometimes i do that yeah. number four was the washington post fact checker Congrats yeah. to Klobuchar for being as like shameless as a journal with that kind of like. <laughs> I do love, I do love that being wrong when you're a Democrat and you speak from the podium with the power of the White House is a misfire. It's a misfire. Oh, yeah. 
Just a misfire. Yeah. Not you a know, lie. It's not a, a lie. It's like a Biden drone strike, you know? Just a misfire. <laughs> oh. <laughs> just a car full of kids. Oh, That's rough. Wow. That's wow, rough. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> That's rough. Wow. Okay. Um, hey, listen. Good game. Good game. Good game. It's the first one we missed in a while. I feel like we've been red hot on Red hot. Red yeah. hot. But hats off to the judge and the jury yeah. for preparing Next us. level tweets. Outstanding work. Great stuff. All right, we have a great interview, and I mean a great interview. you got to listen to every word this guy has to say. Vivek Ramaswamy. I want to welcome to the program one of the smarter people that I have met lately. Very interesting guy. He's the author of the best-selling book, Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Vivek Ramaswamy, how are you? Good to see you. Good talking to you. Listen, man. Um, I see you everywhere, right? You're on, you're on basically all the cable news shows all the time, which I think you do a terrific job on. But what's so interesting to me about you is you got into sort of rooting out and identifying the problems with woke corporatism very early, sort of before the Major League Baseball situation and everything else sort of boiled over and, and made it rise to our collective consciousness. You were on this, but you came at it from the perspective of a guy who's a CEO, uh, which you don't see very often. So, so give me a little descriptor on your journey and how you got there. Yeah, I mean, my, I'll give you the short version of my journey of how I got to the position of a CEO and then how that led me to the journey I'm on now. I, uh, I had gone to Harvard for college. I was a molecular biologist, thought I was going to be a scientist, ended up getting into the world of biotech investing. I spent my seven years as a biotech investor from 07 to 2014. That had me starting my first job, by the way, at a hedge fund in New York, right on the eve of the 08 financial crisis. Oh, which that's actually good timing, shaped, right? <laughs> it's good timing, but it was, it was awesome for a young guy like me because I got a front row seat to what I think was one of the defining events of our generation that actually affects a lot of the birth of woke capitalism, which I'll come back to later. But I had a front row seat to that. Anyway, I spent three of those years in law school at the same time. They, they let me keep my job while I went to Yale for law school. But when I came back from law school to New York City, Back in 2013, I had a lot of spare time on my hands because I was you know, doing a hedge fund job and a law school job. Great, law school's off the docket. So, so I, I, did a, I did a funny thing. I took a stand-up comedy course and, and did a little bit of stand-up <laughs> comedy around New York City. It's like fewer than 10 shows. But, but I picked up a pretty good habit there that stuck with me ever since, which is every time something annoys the hell out of me, I was taught, you write it down. Write and it then down. that's good material for a joke later. <laughs> so I did it. So I did it. And, and it worked okay for my stand-up comedy, my short-lived, I should say, stand-up comedy career. But it first led me to actually leave my job as an investor to start a pharma company. I was investing in the biopharma industry. I was annoyed with a lot of what I had to take for granted from these companies from the sidelines. I eventually left the sidelines, got in the game, and built a company. I, I can tell you about that journey another time, Josh. But the long story short is I kept up that habit. And about six years into my journey of being a CEO, kind of in 2019, there was a new trend that really started to get on my nerves. I mean, really get under my skin, which was the seeming inauthenticity with which every one of my peers, Harvard educated to CEOs, to venture capitalists, to investors, were all of a sudden spouting off the same carbon copy statements about how they were going to serve their stakeholders, serve society, not just their oh, shareholders. Oh, interesting. Well, like the corporate speak, right? Exactly. Just, yeah. It's like as though the same PR consultant had carbon copied the thing and was, was selling it and minting, you know, minting it for selling it for full price every time. But there was something about it that annoyed me. So, so you know what? I needed to say something about it, but I wasn't going to leave the track that I was on. I was on an attractive path as a biotech CEO. I wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed. I crit criticized stakeholder capitalism. 
And my take was a little different because a lot of people in the old school business community might say that, oh, this is going to make businesses run less efficiently. As I thought about it, that wasn't really the thing that bothered me. The thing that bothered me was that actually these leaders were going to wield far more power than they ever should in the marketplace of ideas where every citizen's voice is supposed to be weighted equally. That's what bothered me about it. So, so that's what I wrote about. I had an agent, I think, who's a mutual friend of ours that, that got in touch with me after that op-ed came out. It was somewhat controversial. And, and he said, you need to blow that out in a book. That's what I did. But as I started writing more and more candidly, both in the book and speaking out and writing op-eds and, and, and whatnot in conjunction with preparing the book, I realized that I was wading into some of the most controversial topics in our culture of today, the racialization of our private sector, the infection of woke ideology to really every sphere of our lives and the role of businesses in propagating it. Did that give that, you, I got to ask you, did that yeah. give you pause? Because look, you're still CEO at this point, right? Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, it did. So, so this, is, this is a pretty fast journey, right? So, so this is, the first one I wrote was in February, 2020. And by January, 2021, so that's not really that long of a time and you had the coronavirus pandemic and everything else in between, it felt like it went quickly. By January, 2021, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that argued, made the case against big tech censorship, making the case that actually when these companies are in bed with the government and work hand in glove with the US government, it turns out that they ought to be, in my opinion, legally speaking, bound by the First Amendment. It was a relatively technical argument. I co-wrote it with a former law professor of mine from Yale. But then I noticed something. Three advisors to my company in the week after that resigned. You're that was a wake-up call for me because wow. the country was in such a charge. You remember this. I mean, after January 6th, the, yeah. the political tempers were really running high in the country. And though I wasn't really even talking about the tragic events of January 6th, which, which I condemned even in the op-ed, I was talking about the big tech response to that, which I felt was actually the even greater threat to American democracy. And, and for expressing that view, that in, in a small way, but, but in a non-zero way nonetheless, had consequences yeah. for my company. And so that's really what woke me up, Josh. It was less than a full year later than when I began that I realized that I had to separate my voice as a citizen from my voice as a CEO and really had to protect the company by making really clear that when I was speaking out, I'm speaking as a citizen. Yeah. Even though I had always been careful in that year to separate, I never commingled the two, never used corporate seat of power to be able to voice my views onto my employees or anyone else. I really wanted to be intentionally clear that I'm going to speak in an uninhibited way, but that doesn't mean that that's our company's point of view. So I stepped what? aside as CEO, became chairman. There's a new CEO whose politics are totally different than mine, by the way, which is great. We worked together to build a biotech company, but now that's really what allowed me to speak in an uninhibited way and in an honest way ever since. And so that's what I've enjoyed doing this year. Well, it's really interesting because just the, the perspective of not only being willing, but feeling like you had to go out and speak your, your mind and, and what you view as, as the truth in what's happening in all of these corporate venues is different than all of your peers, right? I mean, at this point, as you said, I think you can go to every major corporation in America and hear the same five talking points about diversity and about, you know, the aims of, of social justice and the, and the totally. betterment welfare of, the, of humanity. And, you know, I mean, it's yeah. all the same garbage. And you, you know, and hell with especially, it. especially if you're one of the younger CEOs, Josh, it's a pretty good life. You know, you wear hipster clothes, <laughs> you applaud diversity and inclusion, you get invited to Davos, fly there on a private jet to muse about the racially disparate impact of climate change, and, and you're pretty good to go. It's, it's not a bad life. I'm going to be really honest about that. I, I, have, I have occupied those same corridors. But at, at the same time, 
I think the American system actually works pretty well when people can see with clear eyes what's actually going on. Right. But what I worried about was that this new breed of woke smoke was effectively creating a tripwire in the system. It was like tampering with the, air, with the smoke detector in the airplane lavatory. It prevented the normal mechanisms of accountability, democratic accountability, political accountability, and market accountability from working to address what would have naturally been more addressed if everyone could just see with clear eyes what was actually going on. Yeah, right, because so they're, all operating, they're all operating under the same fictional set of, of reality, right? I mean, exactly. it's, all, it's all just sort of regurgitating this nonsense, but they're all in on the joke. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, they're all in on the joke, but but in some ways they're so far in on the joke that they've even even sort of tricked themselves into right. believing what they actually would have never believed eight years ago. I mean, what I tell in the book is I kind of think that this is a version of modern capitalist excess. Mm. Back in the pre two thousand eight era, people did a lot of odious things when they had too much excess money on their hands. Yeah, strip clubs, mid, you know, whatever they have, they have sort of these these all kinds of events that you sort of have people uh, indicted for. Dennis Kozlowski had, had tossing oh, yeah. little people off of boats. Right, the big ice parties. sculptures. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so these are the kinds of capitalist excesses in the pre-2008 era. But, but the, the feature of that, Josh, is that nobody came out of it smelling like a rose. It looked inherently unvirtuous for what it was. But the new capitalist excess is actually wielding economic power, right. using force as a substitute for the free speech and open debate that citizens usually use to settle their political questions. And to me, that's actually a far more dangerous excess. And you know, one of the experiences I had was as an intern at Goldman Sachs back in 2006, one of the things we learned, and they were kind of ahead of their curve, more avant-garde in thinking ahead, but even back in 2006, where the people at the top of the food chain would wear tailor-made shirts and expensive Gucci suits, but they would wear these cheap black rubber wrist strap style stopwatches to work prominently juxtaposed against their expensive tailor-made suits <laughs> rather than the Rolexes, which they would leave at home. And I joke around in the book to say that, you know what, America might just be better off if the bankers at Goldman Sachs just wore their Rolexes to work instead of preaching about diversity and pretending to plant trees, which is another incident I had during my summer at Goldman where they pretend to plant trees when in fact they go out drinking. So, so it, it's, it's sort of this farce where eventually they even lie to themselves so much that they appear to believe it when in fact it's just something that allows them to gain more profit and power by pretending like they care about something other than profit and power. And it's all virtue signaling, right? It's a yeah. theater. It's, it it's, is a theater. Yeah. It is a theater. And the problem with signaling your virtue is that at some point, once you have won the reputation for goodness, the appearance of virtue becomes more important than being virtuous itself. No, and I think that well said. It, it's no accident that it's sort of the first commandment of woke capitalism to me is that the more ruthless your actual business practices really are, the more woke you have to act. I mean, there's no, it, I sort of laugh when companies like Raytheon and, and Lockheed Martin train their employees on white privilege. There's no woke way to build ballistic missiles that kill thousands <laughs> of people. I'm not saying that they're wrong to do it. That's just their business. And so, you know, the more ruthless you are, Amazon, I mean, Jeff Bezos suddenly issuing a challenge to his competitor, Walmart, at a moment where their profitability was vulnerable, Walmart's was, he says, we need to put a minimum wage for our workers after 30 years of exploiting his workers to no end. I think that there's, there's sort of a, a farce in all of this, that the more, the, the more uh, unprogressive your, your actual business practices are, if you're Nike relying on actual slave labor in the present day in Asia, the more you have to condemn slavery 250 years ago in the United States. So that's how this game is played. And I'm sorry to say that it's, it's actually from any of these companies, it's working for them in absence of a strong counter movement.
So is this, has this started sort of like a snowball rolling down a hill for you? I mean, you, you, you grow up a Cincinnati guy, you know, you obviously go to some pretty prestigious schools, but, but all of a sudden you take notice of this, you write an op-ed a year and a half later, you got a, a best-selling book out. I see you commentating uh, extraordinarily well on this all over. I think giving audiences a real terrific point of view that they haven't heard before from the C-suite and where does it go from here? I mean, is this just the beginning of your mission? I think so. I mean, I, I, the sooner I achieve it, the less I'm going to be focused on it and the more I'll focus on solving other problems. But, you know, at the end of the day, probably one of the, one of the things I was most proud of during my tenure as a biotech CEO was developing a couple of medicines in particular. The one I'm probably most proud of is a new drug for prostate cancer. But, but I think this new cultural cancer isn't going to be cured by science. It's going to be cured by people who are willing to be candid in reopening the channels of open dialogue and debate around issues that our culture of fear has really prevented from spilling out into the open. And so, you know, I think a lot of people have to face the risk of taking the risk of putting food on the dinner table right. in order to really express themselves or their kids getting a bad grade in school. My kid's too young to be in school. And, and thankfully, I don't have to worry about putting food on the dinner table anymore. I'm, I think that that's a privilege that comes with the responsibility to be able to speak with candor, not just on my own behalf, but on behalf of a lot of other people that may not have the same latitude, very pragmatically in their lives, may not have the same latitude that I do to do what I do. So that's part of what motivates me. I also though made a commitment to myself, Josh, earlier this year when, you know, naturally you start thinking about, okay, where does this go from here? And you lay out a plan. And, you know, I had a few possibilities in mind, but one of the things that I pretty quickly learned was that once you have a plan, the things you say become beholden to that plan. And I didn't want to be speaking about these issues with anything other than total candor. And I didn't want to be beholden to thinking about how it was going to impact my company, which in the reality of the modern world, if you're saying the things that I am, you better be thinking about that if you're the CEO. <laughs> right. That's why I stepped aside as CEO. And we made really clear that there's a new CEO, you listen to him, not to me. But I also didn't want to do it by plotting a, you know, a career in you know, whatever, politics or media or authorship or whatever. I wanted to write this book in an unvarnished, uninhibited way to be able to really honestly share what I had to say at a time where I think the too few people are actually sharing what they truly believe because of their culture of fear or because of their self-interest or whatever the case may be. So part of it was getting out of the culture of fear because I've thankfully reached a, a point in my career journey that has allowed me to achieve the latitude to be able to speak freely in a way that I can take the consequences of it. But part of it was to also separate the self-interest from it. Cause I think once you have a plan, then you're ultimately in some ways a prisoner of your own plans. And, and I wanted to be truly free. And mm -hmm. I've really enjoyed that over the last year. So after the book, you know, I, I said, I was going to come back and think about that around the end of the year after I was fully done with the first wave of getting the book's message out. And, uh, and, and then I'm probably going to stick to that. I'll have a nice reflection at the end of the year about where to take things from here. Well, tell, tell me about, because the, the woke corporate piece is only a piece of what you talk about. I mean, you talk it about is. sort of knitting together all of these cultural realities that parents are facing in schools that, you know, you're obviously facing in your communities and your workforce and everything else. Talk to me about how all this sort of knit together. Yeah, look, I, I, that's something that I've discovered over the last year is that while I critique in the book mostly the top-down phenomenon of sort of elite investors and CEOs foisting their views or the appearance of what they claim their views are on the rest of democracy as a, way of, as a way of avoiding accountability for things they'd rather not be talking about, yes, that's a big part of the problem. But any discussion about this would be incomplete without recognizing that there's also a bottom-up 
issue in our country too, where we have an entire generation, you're in my generation, millennials, people younger than us, Gen Z, who are indeed genuinely, authentically hungry for a cause. We're hungry for, for real purpose, for meaning, for identity. In some ways, the same things that human beings have always hungered for, but the difference is we live in a moment right now where at least at this particular point in American history, I think the things that used to fulfill that void, ideas like faith and patriotism, and dare I say hard work, right. have really receded in public life, in, have receded in our public experience, even in our consciousness. And I think that leaves a real moral and cultural vacuum in its mm -hmm. wake, a sort of cultural black hole. When you have a vacuum that runs that deep, that is really when dark philosophies like postmodern wokeism begin to fill the void. And so to me, I think the right answer has got to be about not just canceling wokeism in return or fighting fire with fire. I think there's a temptation to even on the right to wear this mantle of being a fighter. And, and believe me, I know what it means to be a fighter. I've, I've gone through my share of, you know, even difficulties over the last year, taking the, taking the path that I have. But I think the thing that I worry most about is actually this sends us on a downward spiral as a country where cancel culture spreads from the left to the right, where victimhood culture spreads yes. from the left to the right. And actually, this is one of the cultural issues that I worry a lot about is the spread of victimhood culture in the United States. Oh, Everyone competing God, to be right. a bigger victim. I see it in the minority communities. I see it woke, wokeism throwing fuel on it, but I see it spreading to the Asian American community. I'm an, I'm an Indian American. I look at the next generation, people who are in the generation of my kids, and they're now taught to hide their outward pursuit of excellence in math and science in favor of representing themselves now as victims, as persons of color or whatever the, the modern ideology teaches them for what it's going to take to get into college. Before, you might have been good at the piano or the violin or at, or at tennis. Now you're good at being a victim and telling the story of how you were disempowered. And then guess what? I think a lot of people on the right, even in white working class rural America, I'm here in central Ohio where I live today, having this conversation with you, I worry about the spread of victimhood culture to the right. Yeah, I, so I worry about I. the emergence of white victimhood culture now. And, and I worry about watching every segment of American society and different demographics competing with one another, not on the axes of excellence, but on the axes of disempowerment or victimhood, because that is or has become the new mechanism, the new currency through which we get ahead. Man, that and, is and so I, well said. I really that worry so about well that, said. Josh. I really yeah. worry about that. I do too. I mean, it's, it, I think it's one of the worst byproducts of this entire episode in history for us as Americans, because it's sort of tilted, as you said, on its axis, the, the virtue by which we pursue, right? Do you want to become the best that you can? Can you take advantage of your opportunities? Can you work totally. as hard as you can? Can you do all that? Or... Or can you complain about all the various reasons why you didn't reach your goal? Exactly. Why, why it was somebody else's fault that disempowered you as opposed to realizing yourself, your empowerment and accountability that you own over your own outcomes. To me, that, that's what I think of as the inner American animal spirit, right? The spirit towards American exceptionalism is this animal spirit in the heart of the American soul that today has been tamed. It's been domesticated by this new victimhood culture and our culture of excellence I, I'm sad to say, has traveled oceans to lift up places like China on the other side of the world. And China has sent back the Chinese <laughs> cultural revolution over here. It, there's, there's a small joke I'll tell you, Josh. I told you I had a, uh, I had a failed stint in stand-up comedy. So, so I'll tell you a, a, a joke that probably wouldn't work on the New York City comedy circuit scene, <laughs> which is uh, you know, Chairman Mao comes back to Earth in the year 2021, and he's traveling the Chinese countryside, and he runs into a farmer. And he asks the farmer, 
what happened to those food shortages we used to have? And the farmer says, oh, we don't have food shortages anymore. We have surpluses so much that our people die of diabetes. So Mao says, okay, very good, very good. What about in steel production? We, were, we had a 50-year plan to beat the United Kingdom when it came to producing and exporting steel. How are we doing on that? To which he says, oh, chairman, the Hongzhou province alone produces more steel than the entire United Kingdom, to which Mao says, very good, very good. But whatever happened to that Chinese cultural revolution, that proletariat uprising we were supposed to have, whatever happened to that? And the farmer laughs at him. He says, Chairman Mao, we don't do that over here anymore. We've actually ex exported that and outsourced it to the United States. <laughs> and that's effectively the, the trade in our cultures, where our culture of excellence is now actually lifting up the Chinese who want to be number one at the Olympics. And they've sent over our culture of victimhood such that we send somebody who goes and quits in the middle of the Olympics. And our, <laughs> and our, and our media class loves to celebrate that person as our version of a hero. So uh -oh. I think something has, is amiss in the American culture. And I'm trying to revive that spirit of the unbridled, unabashed, unapologetic pursuit of excellence. And you know, when people rally behind the cry to make America great again, I don't think they rally behind Donald Trump. That's not my view. I think they rallied behind the unapologetic pursuit of excellence itself, because that's part of what it means to be American. And excellence through capitalism is a big part of what I talk about in this book, but that applies to excellence in other spheres too, ranging from education to our arts, to our sports as well. That's part of what it means to be American. Wow. I mean, that is really well said. And by the way, that joke would be a lot more hilarious if it wasn't tragically true. I know. I know. It's pretty you. dark, it's, actually. It's pretty dark. Listen, I got three big questions that we end every show with. I'm really curious about uh, your answers to these. Um, let's start with the first one. The first one is your last meal on earth. Ah. What would it be? Tex-Mex cheese enchiladas with uh, refried beans and rice on the side, side of guacamole and side of sour cream. Spicy oh, salsa. Yeah. Sounds like a man who orders that at least once I, I get. I had that for dinner yesterday too. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what you like, right? Yeah. All right. So if you never got into this pursuit of woke capitalism and punditry sort of bordering on the edge of politics and what do you think you'd be doing with your life? I assume you'd be, you know, sort of in the CEO uh, realm, but, but let, let's expand beyond that. What is, what is yeah. something that you've had great interest in that you're currently not doing that you think would be a different path in life had things going different? You know, I'm limited by capability on what it would be, Josh. But if, <laughs> if I was limited. unlimited by capability, That's it right. would be, I, you know, I just came from the U.S. Open. I'm pretty, I'm, 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 I may be influenced by proximity this week, but uh, I would love to have been a professional tennis player, man. That was, that was my aspiration. I was just, I mean, it, it's one of those experiences you have that, you know what, no matter how hard I did work, I was never going to be <laughs> at the pinnacle of that just because there are limitations that you, you got to contend with. And, you know, that's part of life as, you know, life is lived in real life as opposed to imaginary life. But I'm an avid tennis player. And there's something I love about it because, you know, it's an individualist sport. You know, you, you, you make or break what you accomplish based on how you fight your own inner demons on that court. I really enjoyed watching the U.S. Open final where Novak Djokovic was on the cusp of greatness. Yes. But he was, his own, he was his own worst enemy in that moment. And, and I think that there's something, there's something beautiful about the struggles that those guys go through at the top of that game. So I wouldn't be doing it because I wouldn't have had the skill level to compete at that level. But if I was unlimited by skill, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah, listen, that's a, that's a great answer. Kudlow had the same answer, by the way. Did he? Yeah. I didn't know the, that. I yeah, didn't know that. Okay. He had the same answer. And, you know, and Ted Cruz told us he'd be an NBA player. So the limitations <laughs> of skill are not applicable here. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I don't want to put down, put down uh, Ted Cruz. He's, uh, he, you know, he's, he's, I'm friendly with him. But uh, 
I don't know. I might have been closer to the tennis aspiration than he was to the NBA. I just got to throw that out there. But but not definite, though. Not definite. Not definite. All right. All right. Well, that's a fair, that's a fair point. You can rebut that. But, All right. Um, we'll give him the opportunity. <laughs> All right. So third and final question. This kind of gets to the core of what motivates you. Um, what motivates you more, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? Mm, definitely the thrill of victory. I, I think that once you've been through defeat a few times – it can really be a liberating experience, actually, because, you know, I mean, I had, a, I had a big failure early in my career as an entrepreneur in developing a drug for Alzheimer's disease, which is probably one of the most ambitious projects somebody could pursue in biotech, just because the failure rate is so high. And I thought we had a good shot. And we went through all of the steps. And, and it was like many other drugs before it, a failure. That experience was tough. But, but it was also kind of liberating in that if you realize you could fail on a scale that big and still survive it, then you sort of feel even more free to fail on an even bigger scale the next time around, knowing you'd still be fine in the end. And, and that was something that's stuck with me ever since. I do have, do I, do I experience fear of failure? Of course I do. You know, I, uh, I sort of experienced that even when writing a book. I wasn't sure yeah, whether, I, I mean, first time author, you put something out there and, and, you know, I reconciled myself before I put the book out saying that, you know what, even if for some reason, the book, um, the equivalent of a meteor hits the publishing world and this book never gets printed. I'm still glad I did it because I learned a lot about myself along the way. And, and I think it was worth the shot. And, you know, when it happened to launch it, you know, number two on the New York Times bestseller list, I was pretty happy, but it still leaves some room for improvement next time. You know, I just enjoy the, the opportunity to, you know, put your best work out there and see what you're able to achieve. And sometimes that means, you're going to fall flat a lot of times along the way. And, and I'm okay with that. You know, it happened with my stand-up comedy career. I told you about too. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it's been a I didn't skill know that. being willing that. to fail and indeed failing uh, many times in many different things has been something that's actually, you know, allowed me to allow me to achieve whatever success I have along the way too. I love it. I love this conversation for everybody. You go out and buy woke Inc inside corporate America's social justice scam Vivek, I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate that you're doing this, that you've decided to dedicate time to doing it. I think you're one of the most well-spoken individuals on all of these issues, both because you've experienced them, uh, but also you just sort of sew it all together in a way that I think we're sort of lacking in public discourse today. So I really appreciate the time you've given us here today. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. I mean, like I said, he spits out fire. Dude's just so smart. So smart. And honestly... Like he needs to have a, 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 a more of a platform than he does because it's not like he was saying it, we're in a cultural moment where corporate America has run amok and he has a perfect standpoint to try to critique that and, and go straight at it. But he sews together a whole bunch of different cultural problems that we have into the same sort of cowardice. Right. That we're seeing out of elites in this country. Right. And he does it so effortlessly and so clearly. Like, I would love to see this guy ever. He should have his own show. Well, so, you know, there's often that saying that politics is downstream of culture. And I think that's absolutely true. And if you're a politician and you see some of this stuff happening, you see the end result, right? And you're like, this is a problem. You know, this these woke corporations, all this sort of stuff. What, what, what he can do is go to the root cause yeah. at the beginning and say, here, here's behind the scenes their motivations for why it is that we've seen this slow and steady march towards this sort of woke agenda within corporate America. Yep. And, 
you know, if you're a politician, it's 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 harder to decipher from the outside. Yeah. Right. And that's why I think he's such a good spokesperson for this. It's just great stuff. What a what a banger. Absolutely. That's another banger of an episode, gentlemen. Great interview. Fun and games. Uh, so until next time, minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the lids. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.